Minecraft fans, and welcome to the latest edition of Let Me Tell You Something's Rerun the Rivalry, the December series in which myself, your Let Me Tell You Something co-host, Lorcan Mullen, and your other Let Me Tell You Something co-host, Simon Cross, go through every match that we can lay our hands on that are of importance to the rivalry between two or more people. It's the second instalment, it's Brian Danielson versus Nigel McGuinness, it's match number eight in this series of singles encounters, and I'll get more into that later on. But Simon... Where are we? When is it? And what is at stake? We are at an event called Battle of the Best in Tokyo, Japan, taking place at, and you're going to hear the year, but people who have listened to the whole series will hear this butchering for a second time, at a venue called the Differ Arioki, taking place on the 11th of October 2008. As obviously you guys know, between McGuinness and Danielson, McGuinness is the world, Ring of Honor world champion, but this is a non-title match. And uh, Nigel sort of goes into it in like a pre-match promo, like Brian's basically got to run a gauntlet before he gets his opportunity again. This is going to be the shortest episode. <laughs> I'll say that right now. Because I was wondering, I was starting to think you could kind of tier these 10 matches into three categories. Must see, go out your way to see it worth watching and for the completists and we're in completest country we are definitely in completest country so so far the ones that are worth watching are weekend of champions night two and generation now the two first matches they have in ohio on the required viewing like everyone should watch it i would put in unified driven and the sixth anniversary show but this one falls under the same category as Epic Encounter 2 Survival of the Fittest in that they're the completists. There's nothing all-time engrossing about it. If you to watch, if you watch this in isolation and you were told this is one of the greatest rivalries in wrestling history, they would say, I don't see it in this match. Yeah. The crowd would say they don't see it in this match by the sounds of them. Yeah. But we'll get into that more. I was also thinking, like, what what sort of significance is this match? Because if you look at the world title matches, they're all, like, massive, defining events. Even the epic encounter match, which is not an important match to watch, but the title makes it significant, and the guys wrestle it like it's very important to them that they win this match. This one, it's even lower than Survival of the Fittest. The way I would put it is, like, the championship matches, they're, like, the FA Cup final... The unification match, that was like the Champions League final. And Danielson's trying to do the treble. (laughs) (laughs) They're both trying to do the treble. So this is like Man United Arsenal or something in the the late 90s. Yeah. And the survival of the fittest match is a League Cup fourth round encounter. And this match is the pre-Premier League tour of the other countries that watch Premier League football and it might be for like a trophy that they can make it seem like it's important the Audi Cup yeah I'm putting this below the community shield for significance oh yeah but yeah I mean I remember once uh, Aston Villa won the Peace Cup in 2008 or so and what's great is when the match goes down to a penalty shootout and the players have to try and muster up some kind of care about it (laughs) That's a chance to practice. Just got. I know it's not exactly like the highest tension situation, but just 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 take it as that. 
Yeah, also, I've had to cling on to that Peace Cup victory for quite a while now, as far as uh, <laughs> significant yeah, silver. Yeah, there. at time of recording, Lorcan is most certainly vibing uh, right now. Although, at time of release, the vibe might have gone back to... I didn't want to win it anyway. But, <laughs> <laughs> but we'll hold off on final statements there. But this is a match. It seems like they imply that it was almost fan-requested, or it was just... I wonder if the reason they put it on was like, let's give this rivalry another importance insofar as it's taken place over three different continents. I mean, at this point, they've had eight singles matches against each other in Ring of Honor. And I don't think, you can correct me on this, but I don't think in the history of Ring of Honor, anyone had had like eight singles matches against each other. And they even say in commentary, this is called the greatest rivalry in Ring of Honor history. So they they knew what they had. And maybe it's another sign of Gabe Sapolsky's booking starting to get a bit exhaustive and repetitive because he's going back to that well once again. I don't know. That's maybe a harsh criticism. I'm just saying there was nothing in this match and with the crowd and everything that almost justifies its place in this uh, lineage of matches, really. Even the epic encounter, and to a degree, survival of the fittest had some sort of value. This is almost as close as it comes to just a, a friendly. Uh, and Nigel is not exactly gutted that he lost the match. No, <laughs> he's just kind of annoyed. <laughs> well, he, he, expla- he explains that on um, the pre-match promo. I saw it's like, well, yeah. You've still got to beat all the people I've beaten on pay-per-view before you get this. You can have your match. You, you can have your little match. I'm still champion. That's my still proof I'm still the best. What's also good with that, though, is that the dynamics really, truly do seem to have mostly shifted. If you watch this match, it really feels like they're presenting it that Nigel is the better wrestler at the moment. That he mm. pretty much dominates. Now, partly that's down to just the fact that more explicitly in this point in the series than ever before... There is a face and there is a heel. And Danielson's even grown out his hair. I wonder if in part two almost removes some of the edge from his character. Because when he is like the best wrestler in the world, technical marvel, also kind of an arrogant prick. At the same time, he's got that very short, close-cropped hair that fits into that like no-nonsense, purist, simplest, best wrestler Function like ultimate function of form. Mm. Now I sent Lorcan a pre-recording uh, WhatsApp, and I, I, it sort of it really does work both ways with Brian Danielson slash Daniel Bryan. Even in, uh, when he was in WWE, it's carried over throughout most of his tenure. The way he dresses versus who he is in the ring and as a person, it's such a interesting juxtaposition and when he's a baby face it's sort of like oh i'm the everyman i I just dress like the bloke you meet in the coffee shop kind of thing i'm not flash i'm not arrogant i'm not suits i'm not wheeling dealing but when he's a heel he's like oh yeah i'm like you know conscious i'm either eco conscious i don't need to dress up i don't need to give myself prestige because i'm so badass and hard and conniving I just, I, I love it. I love the way he presents himself by not presenting himself. But that in itself is a presentation. Exactly. But I like how he plays into it. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. It's funny when you look at the differing looks of Danielson over the years. I mean, you can do the grown out hair and beard and have it work as a heel. 
uh, previous episodes, I mentioned that one of the WWE writers, thinking back on it, I think it might have been Court Bauer. I'm not sure. But he was the one that, because I said it might have been Gerwitz, but, uh, or Gerwitz, whatever it is, pitched him when they saw him with this big shaggy beard, which at the time I think he said was basically because he couldn't be asked to shave, which is a very Danielson thing as well. <laughs> That he wanted to pitch him as the Bobby Fisher, and you could do that as like a sign of like a madman or, or genius. But similarly, when he does turn heel and becomes the eco champion, it absolutely fits with the hippie aesthetic and him wearing like the plaid check shirts and everything. Just a quick pause there. Those who don't know who Bobby Fisher is, it might still be on Netflix. That's where I saw it, but Bobby Fisher versus the world. There you'll see an interesting insight into someone's descent into madness he had various looks obviously through time i remember actually when he came out for one of his matches with cm punk in wwe he wore like one of those like the dropout kids that would wear in the 70s they even reference it i think in an episode of big mouth recently it's like this like vietnam army jacket look right yep 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 he wore that for one of his matches with cm punk when it was during punk's long run with the title and Daniel's rare, like, it was basically them indulging Punk, like, yeah, sure, fine, you're important, uh, we'll give you Daniel Bryan, but we won't put you in the main event, no, we've got to reserve that for important matches, like John Cena versus John Laurinaitis. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was an interesting But you time. get to carry a big shiny belt around with you, Punk, yay! <laughs> anyway, <laughs> at, the end the, at the end of the day, Punk, Daniel Bryan's had no five-star matches. John Laurinaitis has had one, so you know. <laughs> I think I think it's two. I don't I don't want to go dwell on those, but. <laughs> <laughs> and apparently, when he came back from the match, Vince was like, "You are never wearing that <laughs> again." But yeah, he, he always changed up stuff and and changes his style in the ring to not just suit his persona at the time, but also to to fit where he feels comfortable as a wrestler and wanting to go after his runs with the long running matches as world champion he wanted to go down to shorter sharper more to the point matches afterwards and this again fitting in with the exhibition side of it it's sort of standard length and again with the survival of the fittest i suppose which is the one that's closest to it is the one that you feel like if they were having to take the match on the loop if they were having to have that match every night this is what we'd get. And instead of the Ring of Honor one, this is the format that it would be somewhere along the lines of. Um, it's just really simplistic story. Danielson controls on the mats. For the most part, McGuinness wants to engage with strikes. Danielson initially brings it back down to the mat again. There's a good bit with the... I always like it when instead of just reaching the ropes, they do try to escape through technical ability, which again... Nigel even alludes to when he's commentating on the Danielson Zack Sabre Jr. match at uh, Dress- Wrestle Dream. He gets McGuinness in an Indian death lock, and uh, Nigel McGuinness then turns it into a chin lock, wrenching it so that now the weight's turned onto Danielson, but he's still in the hole, but he's been able to shift it, kind of like how you turn over a figure four leg lock and logic dictates. Yeah, That means the other guy's in a tremendous amount of pain. I would love it if one match ended with that being the submission. That they both screwed each other's knees up so badly. And one goes for the figure four, the other's able to reverse it, and they're in the middle of the ring, and the one that's had it reversed on just has to tap. Yeah. That'd be awesome. I can see them doing it as a cutesy way out during an Iron Man match, as just a fall there. But as a finish, that'd be amazing. Mm. I remember the consternation online during the pandemic 
when Cody pins Sean Spears with the figure four. That's existed forever. That was always there with the Ric Flair. That's how Ric Flair beat Randy Savage for the world title the second time. Yeah. Again, what a pointless day of argument that would have been. Exactly. So there you Fucking go. Fucking hell. But I, I, I agree with you. I think that would be a cool finish. But I uh, sadly, I can already picture the online discourse surrounding it. That's just how it. That's just the world we live in. But I digress. I remember one of the things when we started the Mounts of Five Star project. No regrets. They don't work. No regrets. They only hurt. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, that, this is a man that's been set free. <laughs> In a in a like a probationary day release kind of way. Oh god, when the claxon gets hit for the fifth one. But now we're gonna find out a lot about ourselves then. <laughs> that one, good. I agree. That one? Eh, I disagree. Yeah, there we go. Well, thanks for listening. <laughs> that was alright, wasn't it? <laughs> the the stereotype I think you'd always had in your mind about Japanese crowds, if you'd watched this one first, it would have absolutely fit within that that the Japanese are very quiet. See, I'm glad you raised that, because I did have that in my mind. But I didn't want to be the one that goes, oh, Japanese crowds. Because yes, as Lorcan is alluding to, that was my pre- preconception prior to starting the five-star series. And yeah, you're right. That This would have further embedded that. But you have to view it as they're seeing a ha- they they know they're seeing a house show match it's a bit of a box checking exercise they can go to whoever they co-promoted with in Japan we gave you Danielson McGuinness and the promoter i guess could go well technically yes <laughs> where's where's my unified <laughs> i mean it's booked as a ring of honor show and they've got the Ring of Honor mats. And this is the second time they've done a weekend of shows in Japan. This was really at the height of their relationship with Noah and Dragon Gate. Noah, insofar as they were just constantly taking talent back and forth. Nigel and Danielson and uh, a few others would go to Noah, do stuff on their tours. As Danielson says at the end of this match, he's then going to challenge Yoshinobu, Uncle Nobu. Kanemaru for the GHC Junior title the night after. I know he does win the Junior title around this time. I don't know if that that was the show that he did. Okay. And obviously Kenta and Marafuji went over to America. And that's always something that the Japanese love to do, is take their talent over to America because I guess it is that sense of them over at the homeland and because the weekly press and everything such an important thing. To have photographic evidence of them wrestling in America just gives them a little bit more legitimacy within. Yeah. And also at this time, it's now become a fixture that before WrestleMania, they have the Dragon Gate six-man tag that blows the roof off the place. And around this time, Shingo Takagi had done like a year's, he'd done his learning excursion from Dragon Gate, which not everyone gets outside of New Japan and and the other promotions, but it worked for them within Dragon Gate. And then he goes back and he's like basically the ace of the promotion for the next 10 years. But I do wonder, like, if you polled that crowd, how many of them knew who Danielson and McGuinness even were necessarily, or... As they're presented in Noah, they're not like the big stars. Like Danielson is kept in the junior division within Noah, 
There's no Danielson getting a win over Morishima in a Noah ring happening at this point. <laughs> and Noah are a more successful company. It's always funny as well when you watch these talent exchanges, how the, the weight of the relationship, who's it's in favour of or not. Obviously, the most famous example of that, I suppose, is UWFI having to come with their tail between their legs to New Japan to work with them. And New Japan's like, well, you're going to eat a lot of shit. <laughs> That's what they do with them. So, come crawling back, eh? I guess, yeah, with, with Nobuhiko Takada, that does work. <laughs> <laughs> Seems like the classy thing to do would be to have me only win one match in the three. <laughs> All right. <laughs> it's clear that, like, Noah is the senior partner, I think, in this relationship. And... Similarly, when Ring of Honor had the relationship with New Japan, it became almost a running joke how rare it was for anyone to get a win over someone like Nakamura or Okada or anyone like that. So do you think Ring of Honor are basically doing what, trying to achieve the same objective as what the excursions were? By being in Japan, are they trying to further legitimize themselves in the wrestling world? I think it's definitely good for the image Mm. to say we've put on shows in three continents. This match is so hot that three different continents have wanted to have it. And actually, in the time in between these, I don't know if it's between this match and Survival of the the Sixth Anniversary Show, but around like this year, Danielson and McGuinness also had a match in Australia against each other, not under the Ring of Honor banner. So this is the fourth continent, depending on how you define Australasia, Oceania, or whatever you want to put it as. I know Australia are now in the Asia Cup in the football. Well, that's because they kept battering everyone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The key thing I want to point out now is that Gabe Sapolsky's policy when he was booking Nigel as champion is that he's getting stronger with each defence. Traditionally, with Ring of Honor, the way that they book their long-running champions, like your Danielsons and your Samoa Joes, is that they're really hot at the start, they're doing it towards the middle, but when it's coming to the time that they're starting to lose, like, the beatings, the injuries have mounted up and it's getting harder and harder for them to defend their titles. Yeah. And that's where they lose it. He's doing it the other way. And it does fit, really, with the idea that Nigel McGuinness only four months into the, his title reign is when he turns heel on Danielson and he finds this, like, liberation, as we were saying, in that sixth anniversary show. And with that also came a victory over Danielson. You could argue that it's a slightly conditional one, but Nigel clearly within his own sense of confidence and pomp fully believes that and also only a month earlier he'd got another pin on Danielson in a four-way elimination match that was the death before dishonor show where it's him and three people that have challenged him for the title in the past and he's beaten them all Tyler Black who's the guy that they're he's kind of being positioned in 2008 ring of honor the same way that Nigel McGuinness was being positioned post unified up to winning the title from Morishima and Claudio Castagnoli, who has been essentially what Nigel was, or, or several people are, like with Danielson, where they come close, but ultimately they do get defeated fair and square, and Nigel is a superior wrestler. And so they have that match, and the fans can kind of already sense that there's nowhere else for Castagnoli to go, because his defeat, unlike the ones with Tyler Black and Danielson, was so ultimately decisive. And he lost to Danielson in a, a friendly match. I think that was probably the start of McGuinness's you have to beat everyone that I've beaten story for Danielson to get another title shot. And so in this four-way elimination, Danielson gets a pin on Castagnoli. Castagnoli loses it, turns heel, 
smashes Danielson's head into a steel chair, and McGuinness is just able to cover the, the corpse of it. Yeah. And is loving it again. It's another pin over Danielson. We could have had it as a bonus episode, but really, McGuinness Danielson was the least focus of this match. The focus of that match was Tyler Black's ascendancy against Nigel McGuinness, and Danielson and Castagnoli triggering a new f- level of a feud between those two. McGuinness, again, is just fully imperious. He's got a swagger when he comes to the ring. He's got a confidence. He And he knows that he's literally got nothing to lose in this match. But he's just having fun, mostly beating up Danielson and controlling him and out-wrestling him. and out Well, not out-wrestling him on the map, but just taking the majority of the offense in this match in the way that Danielson used to treat him in their first few matches. Listening to the commentary for this match, I can't remember in our recent coverage up to this point for a long period of time them emphasizing Nigel McGuinness's height advantage so much because that's how he gets out of hammerlock see the, when they the moment they stand up Nigel just le- like leers over uh, Danielson and they're, they're emphasizing the height more that links into what you've just said in terms of they're building him stronger and stronger it's like he's remembered he's tall again well, also, he's the bullying heel. He's the heel, so the heel bullies their opponent in ways they can. Either they target a limb or they cheat or whatever. With Nigel, he's just like, I'm bigger than you, so I can yeah. dominate you. It's just interesting watching it, again, watching this rivalry one after the other through this lens. It's like, oh, I am tall. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Danielson comes out for a tope, and so he just forearms him in the face. <laughs> yeah, I can reach this. Bang. That was the other thing, like, there was basically nothing on the outside other than that tope spot. There's no dive into the crowd, there's none of that, because again, it's got more of that exhibition feel to it. And when they hit the equivalent of the big moves in the match, like the lariat off the ropes or anything like that, there's next to nothing from the crowd. Because again, I don't know that the crowd, I'm sure there are some, like, hardcore fans that watch what Ring of Honor they can, but... It's very limited access. Mm. And it's like, I've always said, like, if you go to a cinema and you see a, a comedy, or I've seen this at so many shows in Edinburgh, like, how loud the first couple of laughs, it almost becomes a subconscious agreement of, well, this is as loud as we're allowed to laugh. Yeah. And even if you're in, like, you're enjoying the film, you know you can't laugh that that loudly because you become the source that of attention. That guy, yeah. Yeah, exactly. But if you're with num- large numbers of people, like Borat, or the first time I saw The Hangover, or... South Park or Team America, where there was just it got a massive laugh really early on. Everyone felt liberated too. It's like the other end of the spectrum from the sixth anniversary show, which is super heated, super loud, pretty much from start to finish. Yeah, this is the opposite. It's quiet. They're not bored. That's the traditional thing with Japanese wrestling. They watch it with intent, and they're appreciating the effort put on with the applause and everything. But they're not invested. I think they're invested, but they're not emotionally invested. They're intellectually invested. Yeah. It's like reading a Booker Prize novel. <laughs> I'm reading this because I've been told it's good. Yeah. Because I choose to. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Another sign of how strong they want to keep McGuinness is that Danielson is just a back and forth, either man with a chance of winning it, and Danielson captures him with a small package, which in the past they used as like a, a semi-cowardly. Yeah. way of him winning which is how he won it in generation now when he was being overwhelmed by McGuinness as he was for large portions of this match again it's funny that the, this and the 6th anniversary show they're the most classically going with the 
Well, they're going with the heel face dynamic more in the sixth anniversary show because McGuinness is cheating. He doesn't really need. He doesn't feel like he needs to cheat. He thinks he's a superior wrestler. Yeah, wrestles like the superior wrestler. And Danielson sells a lot for him. There's a really good smooth transition from actually twice. There's the cattle mutilation counter into the uh, hammer and anvil elbows. There's Nigel's reversal of cattle mutilation into a dragon sleeper, which immediately goes into the Tower of London. There are some really good, smooth technical spots in this match. They're not working at half speed. Maybe they're working at as close as those who come to half speed, like 85% speed. (laughs) And they're not risking life and limb with a dive to the outside, or they're not... They're not smashing their heads into ring posts or anything. Mercifully. Because, or they're not, I don't know if there's any headbutts in sports in this match at all. So, yeah, it's perfectly cromulent wrestling. <laughs> and it certainly does embiggen the spirit. Because it... Oh, yeah, but I couldn't embiggen my star rating to any more than three to three and a quarter stars, which is the level of that tiering with the Epic Encounter 2 and Survival of the Fittest. Epic Encounter 2, just it stretches it out too much. Survival of the Fittest, it doesn't even feel like it gets to a finishing final gear at all. It does genuinely feel like an abrupt interruption of what would traditionally be like the two-thirds point of the match. And this is just a good, solid house show main event. Functional. Yeah. Technically smooth, but functional match. And at least plays into the sense that Danielson is still McGuinness's greatest rival and greatest threat to the title and when he does beat all the people that McGuinness has beaten it's going to be a problem he could win the belt back from him yeah but yeah it's weird not even seeing the crowd just being that much invested in either of them like and Nigel doesn't again Nigel doesn't play up the heel stuff really when very quietly taking off their like Danielson's Inoki robe Mm. and McGuinness's he knew what he was doing yeah and uh and just one person in the crowd just yells out Nigel and he just goes, yep. That's me. <laughs> you know my name. <laughs> Danielson sneaking in the Mutalock spot as well in Japan. That was yeah. Nice. Yeah. But that's kind of where I am. Would you go along with that? Three, three and a quarter? Yeah. Yeah. Like I say, functional. Good textbook outing. But that's all it is. As we were saying, this is part of a build up to a big rematch that does come later on. And... Where are we for our next episode, Simon? And what, if anything, is at stake? Has Danielson achieved what he's been challenged to do by McGuinness? We are at a event called Rising Above. We are at the 22nd of November 2008. McGuinness has gone a full year at this point as Ring of Honor World Champion. And Brian's achieved all of his objectives. He, he has beaten all of... McGuinness's opponents that he vanquished on pay-per-view. He has cleared the deck, and now Nigel McGuinness is backed into the corner. His his mouth has written the check. He might have to cash it now, because it's a Ring of Honor world title match. But until then, Simon, if people want to get in touch with you with some top-quality pre-season warm-up matches involving Premier League footballers that they're definitely trying at. No Mario Balotelli back-heel attempts here oh, getting subbed off. Oh, that was gold. <laughs> so, Mario. <laughs> How can they do so? People can get in touch with me on Twitter, where I'm so known as Simon Cross Free, free for the number of decibels on average that the crowd noise was in this match. <laughs> My name's Ogamon Alonso, L-O-R-C-A-N-M-U-L-L-A-N at the A-N at the end of Japan. 
That's my Twitter handle, Instagram, Facebook, Letterbox. If you put an at gmail.com at the end of it, that's my email address. Get in touch with the show at lmtyspod at gmail.com. LMTYSpod is also our Twitter and Facebook handles. But there's nothing left to say at this point except that my name's Lorcan Mullen. My name's Simon Cross. Thank you for letting us tell you something, and I hope you'll stay with us as we continue to rerun the rivalry. We all miss our time.